on my mind. Change you can't modify. Change you can't quantify. Look, making change on my mind. This is 30 Wood, a podcast celebrating the 30th anniversary of Fernwood Publishing. In this series, we talk to Fernwood authors about their work, their activism, and why radical publishing is so critical. In this episode, I talk with Anne Bishop about what it was like to be one of the earliest writers of the concept of allyship. We also talk about fiction writing and what it's like having to share a name with other authors. Anne Bishop, welcome. Thank you. Really good to be talking to you. Yes. Can you introduce yourself for listeners who might be familiar with your work or who might not at all be familiar with your work? Okay. My name is Anne Bishop. I'm an adult educator, a writer, until very recently a farmer. My books with Fernwood were uh, first uh, Becoming an Ally, and then uh, Beyond Token Change, and then Grassroots Leaders Building Skills. And in 2019, they published um, my first novel, uh, Under the Bridge. Well, that was it's under the Roseway, Roseway imprint, but... Uh, same good, <laughs> supportive, <laughs> progressive publishers. <laughs> That's right. So over multiple books, uh, and just by those titles alone, uh, there's, there sounds like there's a, a real evolution in how you are addressing your audience through your books. Talk, talk, to, talk to me a little bit about that, like starting from a place of talking to allies and moving through um, through the left, I guess, over the years through writing. I have changed a lot in terms of how I see my writing over the years. By the time I wrote Becoming an Ally, I had already been published four times, co-authored books, but I had never conceived of myself as a writer because I, I was an ad, I was, I am an adult educator. And uh, all I had done was uh, fill in gaps that I had seen and provide resources for my teaching that I couldn't find anywhere else. Um, so basically, it was an adjunct to my teaching, and I didn't think of it as, you know, as writing as such or see myself as an author. And in fact, that's where Becoming an Ally came from. I was teaching community development in the north end of Halifax, and I kept running into the legacy of divide and conquer, <laughs> if, if, you, if I can put it that way. I would have... Um, Members, for example, of the African Baptist Church react to the LGBTQ young people or trans young people in the group, you know, react badly. I would have um, low-income white single mothers be totally unaware of their racism. I would have deaf students that would react very badly to uh, students with intellectual disabilities because so many of the... Um, Insulting terms for people with intellectual disabilities were also used on the deaf community. And I kind of despaired of how we were going to get anywhere with this kind of grassroots community organizing if, if people were constantly sliding into their prejudices against each other. Or uh, the other thing that would happen frequently was getting into competition over who was the most oppressed. So I was trying to figure out how to teach this stuff. When I went to a community meeting, there had been a uh, violent and invasive uh, drug raid 
on a primarily black community in the north end of Halifax. And there was a very large, very angry public meeting about it. And at that meeting, someone stood up, a white man, and I don't know who he was to this day, and talked about white allies. And I suddenly clicked that that was the concept I needed to be able to teach this stuff. Um, also, uh, I, might, I was at that point myself going through, how do I balance the fact that I'm a feminist, I'm a very public LGBTQ activist, but I'm a white person in a predominantly black community. And I was kind of, I was working on understanding uh, oppression and privilege for myself even. When this concept of allies came up and it, and a whole lot of things suddenly clicked. So I started looking for uh, resources that I could use both to learn about this concept and to teach it. And I found absolutely nothing. <laughs> okay, this would be 1988. Okay. I was going to ask what years we're talking about here. Yeah. Yeah, this was 80, 88, I think, or maybe 89. Anyway, there was nothing. So I started the way I always start. Um, I started experimenting with teaching this stuff. And of course, the vast majority of my insights come from my students always. And um, I started keeping a, a journal, like I always keep teaching journals on these things. So I experimented with teaching and I kept my journal from about 88 to 92. I, I experimented with teaching and kept this journal. And sometime around 92, I decided to print it all out. I kept it online. Um, not online. There was no such thing as online. <laughs> I kept it on my computer and I decided to print it out. And it was that, you know, that paper that folded like an accordion that would come. Of course. <laughs> come out of the printer and kind of accordion itself and on the floor. I printed out the old journal and it was about three inches thick when it all, had all hit the floor. So I tore the pages apart and I went through it and I marked all of the themes. And the same themes kept appearing over and over again. So I basically used that as my first draft. And I started to work with that. And that became the manuscript of Becoming an Ally. And I asked eight of my students and former students to go through the manuscript with a, a yellow highlighter. Um, let me see. The maximum level of education in that group was grade nine. So I asked them to go through the manuscript and mark everything they didn't understand. Well, <laughs> these manuscripts came back more yellow than white, basically. Right. <laughs> so um, they kindly sat down and negotiated it with me like, OK, this is what I'm trying to say here. We still don't understand this is what I'm trying to say. Well, could you put it this way? <laughs> like we worked our way through that way. Oh, wow. And um, eventually uh, that's how the manuscript emerged. Actually, it's been fun because um, over the years of and the three editions of Ally, probably the thing that has been said to me most often by university students is, I love that book so much I could understand it. <laughs> Well, that's thanks to those eight women who worked through it with me, phrase by phrase in some cases. That's when we decided to make a, uh, a glossary, too, because there were some words we just couldn't get rid of. So we, uh, we, tried, we, we made the glossary. 
Anyway, once I had it and I had done another literature review and there still wasn't anything out there that I could find, I sent it uh, to six different publishers, one after another, and they all rejected it. And I, I don't usually have this kind of confidence in myself, but I knew this book had a niche. I knew it, it, uh, I knew it was useful. So um, I gave it to, uh, to Errol Sharp at Fernwood. At that time, he had been publishing for, if my memory is correct, 17 or 18 years. And I gave it to him and I said, you're a publisher. Would you do me the favor of reading this and telling me what's wrong with it? And uh, why nobody will publish it that I think should be interested in it. He read it through and he came back to me and he said, he said, there's nothing wrong with it except that it won't sell. He said, we take a book every year uh, and publish it just because we think it should be published, whether we think it will sell or not. And we've decided to take this one. So it was um, their um, charity book, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, their, their book that won't sell but should be published mm. anyway book for uh, 1994. And uh, the irony of that is it's, as as far as I understand from them, it's been their best-selling book every year since. Wow. It did have a niche. It, it did take off. Um, at one point, it was used in every social work school in Canada. And it was, you know, when I look back at that first edition, I mean, my, my own understanding was still quite limited. I mean, looking back. Um, no, I did Beyond Token Change next, which was a sequel because Becoming an Ally is uh, is about people as individuals becoming allies to one another. And I very quickly realized that that wasn't enough. Um, I had to look at the structural aspect of this kind of, of change as well. Mm -hmm. Beyond Token Change is the book form of my master's thesis on how institutions react when they're accused of racism and the choices that they have. And so it's a far different book. Like it's um, no panel of eight low-income single moms went through it for me. It's a much more academic book, but um, it, it tries to take the whole idea of allies into the, into the structural realm. And then we did a, a second edition of Ally. By then, there was some other literature not a whole lot, but some. By the time we did the third edition in 2016, I had to pick and choose which literature I used. There was so much. And um, they want me to start working on a fourth edition now. And I don't even know how to begin with the literature research. It's just uh, massive. Yeah. For this fourth edition, we're talking about doing something collaborative too, because Young, younger people are taking this whole concept of allies in directions I can barely keep up with. And there's a whole um, critique that has developed of, of the concept of allies as well. And um, I feel like I'm getting too old to keep up with this. So we're looking at doing something collaborative. But all this to say, I didn't even start thinking of myself as a writer until, well, eventually that course where all of this happened, uh, the community development course in the north end of Halifax ended uh, because of the kinds of forces that, um, here's another Fernwood book, Jamie Brownlee talks about in Academia, Inc., you know, the uh, corporatization of uh, 
of advanced education, which began, I think, in continuing education. So, so that course ended, and I didn't want it to go away, and Fernwood uh, went out of their way to help me publish it in a form that people could use. It's, um, it's spiral-bound, so you can turn it back and just put the handouts on the platen of a photocopier or a scanner and, uh, and just copy them. Um, and there's no, like the copyright is given away on the book. But it wasn't until all of that, after all of that, that I thought, where do I go next? And I looked at my lifetime dream of writing a novel. And it's at that point, and just only then, so we're talking 2009, that I actually began to think of myself as a writer. Before we talk about your your novel writing, and I've, I'm very curious to hear about that, tell me what it was like to see the concept of allyship go from almost total obscurity to something that's quite mainstream. Like you must have felt, I don't know, like did you did you feel like you were ahead of the curve or did you feel like it was a wonderful to see this become a concept that so many more people were talking about? How did you experience that? All of the above, I guess. Okay. <laughs> like everything that I did when I was young, like on one hand, a joy to watch some of these things take off and become, you know, a conversation that's not just a tiny group of us in a closet somewhere. Oh, <laughs> I don't mean that <laughs> literally. And I don't mean that just in my LGBTQ activism. But on the other hand, all of these movements and concepts have been uh, heavily co-opted, which is, is really dismaying to me. The concept of ally, for example, it's it's very tempting for governments and politicians and corporations and individuals as well. I mean, it's quite a relief to get out of the discomfort and pain of understanding yourself as as part of a group that has an oppressive past by just saying, oh, look, I'm an ally, like checkmark. It takes some of the pressure off. And so that so the whole concept has been heavily co-opted as well. So yeah, I have kind of I have really mixed feelings. I, I'm really glad it's a it's a conversation, but uh, I have mixed feelings about where all of these movements and concepts are now. Yeah, well, I, I immediately wonder, you know, when when we have a prime minister that would call himself an ally, mm-hmm. what does that what does that mean? Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, and who calls himself a feminist and who yes. says reconciliation is the is the first priority of his government and then sends in the RCMP against the the Wet'suwet'en people who are resisting the, the pipeline. Yeah, yeah. So with this this history of writing uh, nonfiction and academic writing and, and, and trying to, you know, de-academic guys your writing in the first, <laughs> Great word. In the first go, thank you. <laughs> I was going to jump to a French word that's much better, but uh, but there there we go. We've got a new English word. What was that shift to, to then move towards fiction like? I have read fiction all my life. I mean, I have memories. And where I grew up, you could get your first library card when you were five years old. We, my sister and I both got our cards in the kind of the day after our fifth birthday uh, and took out books on our parents' cards before that. And I, I have vivid memories, you know, of leaving the library with an armload of, of books. And they would tend to be two-thirds fiction, maybe, and one-third nonfiction. And just being excited about it. <laughs> I also started in a one-room school. And, uh, oh, I have 
such deep respect for the teachers that functioned in those one-room schools, like trying to manage the education of all eight grades in, in one room. But it meant that we did a lot of work on our own. Like we, she would give us assignments and, and we would do them. But if you finished your assignment, you were allowed to go to the, the double shelf of books that was on the side of the room um, under the window and read them. And uh, it was it was a mix of fiction and nonfiction, but I would say it was predominantly fiction in that schoolroom. And uh, I read my way through that library probably three times by the time I was in grade five. <laughs> <laughs> wow! So I just uh, I love fiction to this day. I probably two thirds of what I read or more, maybe three quarters is fiction, but. It was a terribly scary thing to do because nonfiction writing, if it isn't working on the page, I know I'm not clear enough myself. And once I get my own thinking totally clear, I know it will work on the page as well. But fiction, there's all those factors of, of uh, people's complexity and people's likability or hateability and a reader's capacity to believe that something's real. Like you can put something that really happened to you on the page and a reader won't find it believable or vice versa. Like believability is not connected with, did it really happen? So I just found it so much more complex. And it was after the publication of Beyond Token Change in 2005 that I sat down and said, okay, how much more time do you have? <laughs> how many more books do you have in you? If you're ever going to write a novel, it's kind of now or never. So I joined um, Susan Haley's creative writing course at the Acadia University's uh, Adult Learning Center, went through it three times. Uh, and then I joined the uh, distance education course at Humber College. And uh, Probably the best thing that did was get me into writers groups because the students in each of those classes uh, formed groups where we would get together and just read to each other. And later, um, I started having writing buddies. We would get together every two weeks. First of all, it's a motivation to write something. We would exchange it like two or three days ahead and read it and then go have a coffee and discuss them. And uh, it's through the people in my writers' groups that I have really, really began to learn how to uh, how to write fiction. I mean, I'm, it sounds like I'm claiming to know. <laughs> I don't really know. How to... <laughs> <laughs> well, you have demonstrated some level of of skill, so I think that it's it's fair to own that. And I love that you know writing is a very solitary exercise, um, but in both. Of your in, in both the nonfiction and fiction that you've written, you've talked about how important it has been to rely on other people to break that to break that uh, solitude in your writing. Mm-hmm. That seems that seems pretty that seems pretty profound. And and I'm wondering what changes. I mean, you've explained it already with the with the nonfiction, but what changes with the fiction side of writing when you're able to 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 bring your characters to life through conversations with others? Oh, I think you get you get wonderful feedback because you get so deeply inside of your characters. I read just recently a writer saying that she had she's always in love with her characters and really it's a, it is a similar thing. And so um 
you become uncritical of them, right? Like how critical can you be of someone you're in love with? (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so to have people read it and say, well, that doesn't make sense. Why did she do that? Or um, where is this anyway? I've kind of lost where we are. Or did something else happen that I've missed here? You know, like all of those questions that are coming from an honest reader, just trying to follow, trying to relate, trying to get attached to your characters. It's crucial for me. Maybe some people can write alone, but, um, but I can't. I always write in some kind of conversation. Balanced, of course, against the hours you spend in front of your computer. Yes, of course. I'm going to ask a binary question, but I expect the answer to not be binary. Um, <laughs> you're an activist, and I'm wondering what is better for activism and for advancing ideas, nonfiction writing or fiction writing? I have been asked that ever since I've become an author of both, and I've struggled with how to answer it. I've come up with different answers at different times. But at this point, I'm kicking myself forever, even falling into any kind of binary over this. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's the same as saying like, you know, which is the worst form of oppression? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Binaries are a a tangent. (laughs) Yes. And and how, how I ever fell into that, I don't know, because my own development has gone back and forth between clarifying my ideas, clarifying my analysis, experimenting, analyzing my experiments. Uh, you know, that's how I've, I've learned teaching. That's how I learned activism. And on the other side, listening to people, you know, hearing people in all their complexity, uh, learning that, you know, the life isn't all that logical, much as I would love to <laughs> love to think it might be. We, we are emotional creatures before we're intellectual creatures, I think, although I'm, that may say more about me than anybody else. So, so, you know, the movement back and forth between reading yourself into a life that you will never experience, you know, an indigenous life, an African life, a, you know, a, the life of a slave, the, the life of someone who's trapped in the corporate world, although they know what they're doing is wrong, you know, being able to enter lives and feel it and, um, and wrestle with it is, is important. And so is the sort of narrowing down, clarifying analysis functions of, of, and in, oh, goodness, information. I mean, I get my information from nonfiction, mostly. Um, like, why would it ever be a binary? <laughs> Life goes back and forth. So does writing. I, uh, I I also think about this all the time and wonder if, um, you know, you're trying to come up with a prescription for what things should be like. And is allegory and storytelling the better way to get into someone's mind? Or do they close it at the end and say, well, that was it. And now I'm moving on. <laughs> it's, a, it's such an interesting tension. And you know, as a left-wing person, uh, I mean, I think, like, unfortunately, we are marginalized in Canada, but it would be so great if we were able to expand the ranks of of that of that engaged literature perspective, right, of, of writers who are writing for social change. Yeah, when I, when I think of my own life as an activist, 
I, th- I think of the importance of both nonfiction writers posing what could be. I've been for years a supporter and subscriber to the uh, Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives because when a federal or provincial government comes out with a budget, to be able to have somebody actually do the work of how could we be budgeting, you know, what could life be looked like, look like in a public budget is such an important part of the process. But likewise, all of the dystopian and utopian novels I've read are so important to to my my dreaming, you know, of what we're aiming for. And um, we do so much short-term organizing that's based on what we're against or what we're for in in an immediate sense, you know, like we want to stop Alton Gas from carving salt caves beside the Shubenacadie River. Or, you know, we want to stop clear-cut logging or, uh, you know, or we want to, uh, we want to have um, accessible abortion for every woman. But as we keep, continue to work together now down the road, we often discover that we're coming at it for different reasons, right? And we also need to be dreaming long-term. One book that I have carried with me for years and years and years, I don't know when it was written, maybe the 70s, I think, is Marge Piercy's Woman on the Edge of Time, where she has a woman, uh, her, her main character is, is a, a patient in a psychiatric hospital, and the drugs and the treatment she's getting are allowing her access to a future and it's a completely, it's my utopia, right? <laughs> Since the 70s, I've so often referred to, to aspects of the utopia that Marge Piercy created as being what I'm aiming for in the end. And um, I think that kind, of, that kind of literature is extremely important. One of the questions I'm asking all of the participants in this series is perhaps an obvious question, but I think it's a very useful one for us to reflect on, which is why is independent radical publishing important right now? Um, How can I speak with five underlinings? (laughs) It is so important because so many of our channels of communication belong to the corporations and um, our interests are are not theirs and vice versa. We absolutely have to have other other channels. Now that that's really broad because we we need other channels of communication, but we also need other channels of analysis that takes the time to gather the information and put it make some kind of order to it and create a conversation, you know, so so books, I'm saying books are important. I mean, I know there are other means to do that, but uh, so much of our communication to me feels like it's short term. And uh, we also we also need to do that concentrated analysis that means sitting at your desk for a year, right, as well as participating in all these conversations. Um, but no, we just, we, we would, I, I, we would be lost without progressive publishing. Um, and filmmaking and uh and efforts like your own podcasting and um you know which is kind of a, an offshoot of to me <laughs> my old-fashioned self as an offshoot of radio as the corporations take it over and as 
public channels like the CBC are uh, eroded and starved of funding and forced to take advertising. Sometimes I think on, on, I thank goodness, CBC radio doesn't have advertising, but uh, CBC TV seems to have more than some of the private channels. We need to fight for, for all of these channels, both by fighting for the ones that we should have, like the CBC, and creating alternatives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm going to ask you now questions that are a bit more rapid fire, and I'm asking them to all of our guests, and the answers have been so interesting in how similar and dissimilar they have been. And so the first question is, what, what are your favorite places to read and write? My favorite place to read is in bed. <laughs> you're not the first to say that (laughs) it's not really the best way to go to sleep but um it's it's the end of the day it's um it's a lifetime habit my parents went to bed you know on a bit of reading and read to us when they were putting us to bed before we could read for ourselves and it's just i have to be pretty pretty exhausted uh to fall into bed without reading (laughs) Oh, that said, I mean, if I'm reading, both reading and writing, my other favorite place is my study. Um, since you can't see me, you can't see my little triangular um, attic space that is my study. And this is, uh, I spend hours and hours and hours here, and it's the place where I do all my writing and certainly some of my reading. <laughs> Great. What books do you have on your to-read pile right now? My to-read pile threatens to fall over and kill me in the middle of the night. <laughs> <laughs> and that's just the books I own. <laughs> right. I do, I do the majority of my reading from libraries. Right on top of it is Lila Saad's um, Me and White Supremacy because a friend just lent it to me. And I give Lent books priority so I can get them back before I forget about who they came from. Um, so that's, what's on top of the pile. Do you have a ritual that prepares you to write? No, I don't. And I probably should because I'm a horrendous procrastinator. Ah, I deal with all my email and then I start thinking, Oh, shouldn't the books on my shelf be in alphabetical order? (laughs) (laughs) Or, Oh dear, that dust ball is the size of a puppy. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So I think that's a very good idea. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you'll have to listen to other episodes because a lot of folks have very interesting rituals. And I, I also don't have any writing rituals. And so I'm finding them very insightful, I have to say. Ah, good. I will listen. What are you doing these days for fun? Um, not much because, um, we, my partner and I have, two years ago decided that farming is too much for our bodies and uh, began the process of looking for a bungalow that would suit us and that we could afford just in time for the pandemic to drive property values through the roof. (laughs) But through an interesting set of circumstances, a bungalow came up that does suit us and we could afford. And so at the moment we are in the midst of um, downsizing, um, packing, emptying outbuildings, um, and at the bungalow we just bought, painting, uh, repairing. So I expect 
that fun might re-enter my life around Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) Good, good. It's always important to have that on the horizon, right? (laughs) Exactly. But on on the other hand, I mean, we won't survive if we don't, uh, if we don't get ourselves away and go for our beach walks and, um, oh, and it's just so wonderful after the last two and a half years to, to feel we can, um, we do a lot of cooking for our friends and, and vice versa. We do both potlucks and exchange meals and, uh, um, we, we, we tend to do a lot of just eating with our friends and, uh, it's so lovely to have that back. So we will be trying to fit some of that in and, um, really looking forward to having, having people over to our new dining room. (laughs) Nice. Uh, The final question is, who is someone you look up to? Oh, goodness. So many. How could I possibly narrow that one down? I guess to tie it right back to the beginning about how um, becoming an ally came to be written, it's the people that I teach and uh, work with um, who survive. Like I just, I'm just amazed at what some people have survived and have not become closed down and embittered and retreated from life and, you know, continue to, to work at it, you know. Where can people find your work? Where can they get copies of your books or read other things that you are working on? Um, I have a website. It's uh, annbishop.ca. It's very important to do annbishop.ca because annbishop.com is an American fantasy writer who has, I don't know, 20-some novels out and rather different politics from mine. (laughs) Well, that must be... (laughs) That must be tough, a little bit. It's interesting. <laughs> There's also a cookbook writer named Ann Bishop and a nursing textbook writer. Wow. We often get attributed of each other's books. Actually, a little story. Uh, at one point, Ann Bishop, the fantasy writer in the States, had at the bottom of her list of books on her website, she had a little statement that said, I am not the Ann Bishop who wrote Becoming an Ally, and I cannot help you with your college paper. Oh my goodness, that's funny. Isn't it? So I wrote to her and said, I am the Ann Bishop who wrote Becoming an Ally. (laughs) And please, you know, put this contact address on for people who want help with their college papers. Yeah. I've I've had a lot of amazing backs and forths with people in academic settings who are reading Becoming an Ally and struggling with it and writing papers on it and finding other writers, you know, that are doing closely related things. I've learned so much from those people. So I said, you know, please, here's my, here's where to refer people. And she not only didn't respond to me, shortly afterwards, she copyrighted the name Ann Bishop. <gasps> no. <laughs> wow. I don't think that's, I, I don't think that's possible legally. No. Um, and it certainly wouldn't reach over the border, but I thought that was an interesting statement. Wow. Anyway, um, so annbishop.ca, and um, it has uh, all of my books listed there. The ones that are still in print are all Fernwood and Roseway. 
the ones that are one that is out of print is online. Uh, that's the land of milk and money, uh, and it's online at the Canadian Food Security. Not exactly what they're called. It's it's on the website. Um, it's a group that that works towards Canadian food security. I have also got a second uh, life under a pseudonym writing fantasy. <laughs> Because I can't write fantasy as Anne Bishop, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) So my fantasy name is Rowan Starsmith. And um, I have, I self-published my first fantasy novel. And um, I have a second one well underway. And that's available. um, I opened an Etsy shop so that people can, can buy it from me. And the link to the Etsy shop is on my website. I would really like to do some shorter term writing. I'm full of admiration for people like you that keep up a podcast every week, right? Yeah, it's not uh, it's not that easy. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> to be inspired every week <laughs> and come yeah. up with analysis every week, I'm I'm just so impressed. I've a couple of times toyed with starting a blog on the website, but I'm a slow thinker. Um I'm kind of a, uh, well, the Myers-Briggs classes me as an intuitive thinker, like information comes in and comes in and I work with it and I talk to people about it and all of a sudden, boom, the idea is there. But for me, it's a very slow process. So um, I'm not so good at, at short writing, but I keep thinking it would be a good thing to do. Um, but anyway, I guess the, uh, anything I, I do, I will continue to link to my website. So people who are interested should check out annbishop.ca. And thank you so much. This has been a delight. Oh, it's been such a pleasure. Um, I wish it could go on and on. <laughs> Maybe for the 60th anniversary. Yes. <laughs> oh, no, not that. Let's, let's try 35th. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You've been listening to my conversation with Anne Bishop as part of the 30 Wood podcast series. Episodes come out every two weeks, so be sure to check back to hear your favorite Fernwood authors. 30 Wood is hosted and produced by me, Nora Loretto, with lots of help from the team at Fernwood. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share your favorite episodes. Fortress of magnitude, they can't subdue. Liberation is radical. You're telling me my dreams have to be practical when all these global systems are tyrannical. Point of view, more than two.